We are right in the middle of Sukkot, the Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. What is it all about? It's part of the foundation of our faith if we are followers of Jesus in the New Covenant. There's much that we can glean from the Old Covenant, but very few believers understand the history and the mystery. We're going to find out both of them on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. All over the world, Israeli people are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, referred to as Sukkot in their language. It's happening right now this week. We're right in the middle of it. But what is the Feast of Tabernacles? What does it represent? And is it relevant for followers of Jesus in the New Testament to participate in these celebrations? I have many, many times. I've spoken at many Feast of Tabernacles celebrations. In fact, Elizabeth and I were really blessed and privileged to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, put on by the Christian Embassy. And I learned to deeply appreciate our Old Testament roots, the foundation of what God spoke and what God did and what God commanded of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, how that was all a foreshadowing of something that was yet to come. And it's a beautiful thing to see the history and the mystery, because the history of what God did unfolds into a mystery of what he's going to do. And I'm going to show that more distinctly in just a few moments. But there are seven primary feasts of the Lord. I want you to have this overview, just in case you're not familiar with it. You have the spring feast, a singular summer feast, and the fall feasts. The spring feasts are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. And all of those happen around the same time in an eight-day sequence. And then you have the Feast of Pentecost, midway between the two. And then you have the fall feasts, which are comprised of the first day of the seventh month on the Jewish calendar of Tishri, and that is the Feast of Trumpets. Then the 10th day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur. I taught on that last week, the Day of Atonement, a day in which God commanded them to afflict their souls in repentance. And then after that, the 15th day to the 21st day, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And quite the opposite, during this seven-day festival, God commanded the Jewish people to rejoice. It was actually an expectation of God that they would spend seven days joyful, grateful, celebrating, worshiping, ecstatic over what God had done. All of these feasts have relevance in so many ways. 
Let me take you back to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, though, because this kind of sets the tone for all of the feasts, all seven of them that were celebrated annually on a continual basis throughout the Old Covenant era from the time of the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt onward. And when Moses stood before Pharaoh, he said this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they might hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And of course, that was the initial feast, the feast of Passover that took place during their deliverance. But also in the wilderness, they celebrated all seven feasts. And so in essence, God is saying exactly what Psalm 23 says, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. There across the Red Sea, you have this empire that wanted to ensnare and enslave the children of Israel, but God is feasting with them in the wilderness. Now, this world is a wilderness world. I don't fit here, and many of you don't really feel like you fit here either. It's just a strange place. I know why Moses named his son Gershom, which means stranger in a strange land. I feel that way quite often. But I also feast with God every day in this wilderness of sin that I'm surrounded with. And we can do that. There are five applications to every one of the feasts. And we're not going to go into the details of the other feasts. We're just going to focus primarily on the Feast of Tabernacles. But there's five aspects to each one of the feasts that we need to be cognizant of. Historical number one, practical, number two, symbolical, number three, spiritual, number four, and prophetical, number five. So there's those five elements to every one of the feasts. And notice it begins with historical and it ends with prophetical because every one of the feasts looks back to something God has done, but it also looks forward to something God is going to do. And it has a practical purpose in the present. And so there's three uh, perspectives, if you will, past, present, and future in every one of the feasts. In fact, the number three really fits because there's three major times of conducting these festivals, the spring feast, the summer, and the fall. And there's three areas of emphasis. We're going to see that, say, for instance, the spring feasts are all about the sun. The summer feast, the Feast of Pentecost, is all about the Holy Spirit. And the fall feast is all about God's role as Father and our role as sons and daughters of God coming into maturity. So it's the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, the past, the present, and the future. And actually, it's symbolic of God dealing with three different areas of our being, the spirit, the soul, and the body. And of course, Passover, the beginning feast, is all about the blood of the lamb that was on the doorposts, and it symbolizes the blood of the lamb of God washing us clean and giving us a new spirit. And then Pentecost is all about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was foreshadowed by things in the Old Testament, and that brings transformation to our soul. 
But tabernacles is all about ultimately the fact that God is going to tabernacle in us in a perfected, glorified way so that we shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, and we are eternally the dwelling place of the Most High. And that's our body being changed. So you have spirit, soul, and body represented by the progression of the feast, past, present, and future. You have um, the three aspects of the Godhead, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father associated with these three groupings of feasts. And remember the five applications, historical, practical, symbolical, spiritual, and prophetical. And we're going to go into that a little deeper now. First, though, let me bring out Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Because I have seen some Christians become so excited, so thrilled, ecstatic would be a better word, about discovering the connection, the prophetic connection between the old covenant feasts and the new covenant fulfillment that I have seen at times people get overly enamored with all of the details of the shadowings of the Old Testament era that foreshadowed the substance, the reality of what God would do in the New Testament, which is infinitely more important. And I think we need to understand and balance out our response to these things, because we can go too far one way or the other. You can be oblivious to the history of what God has done in the world and be shallow in your Christian understanding, or you can be overly uh, wrapped up in the Old Testament rituals and traditions and things that Jewish people even are doing to this present day. And that becomes your greater emphasis. But listen to Colossians chapter 2, Verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival. And of course, tabernacles, Sukkot, is a festival. Or a new moon or Sabbath. And that word Sabbath is in the plural because not only did God ordain a weekly Sabbath, which falls on Saturday, and Sabbath simply means a time of rest, a day of rest. There are seven other Sabbaths which include the first and last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and the first and last day of Tabernacles. All of those were commanded to be days of rest also. And I'm going to give you the scripture reference for that. But Paul said, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In other words, he's saying those things are good to know. Those things are really important to understand, but they're on a much lower level than this exalted revelation of coming into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the epitome of what God's been building toward for centuries and millennia. And so let's not backtrack to the Old Testament and think those things are supremely important because, again, the shadow is less important than the substance. The symbol is less important than the thing symbolized. And this is just a symbol, the Feast of Tabernacles. I love it. I've 
participated in it many, many times, but it's just a symbol. And I'm glad I have the substance of what the Feast of Tabernacles represents. Let me give you a great scripture to tie in at this point. Proverbs 15, 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And I believe that really encapsulates what God wants for us in a much larger scope. Because all of the feasts were held annually on specific days. But God doesn't want you to be confined to just one day here and one day there when you have a feast of celebration with him. He wants you to experience internally a continual feast, which is really what happens. All of the seven feasts, when they hit the cross, bump up into a perpetual fulfillment. And by perpetual, I don't just mean perpetually on a year-to-year basis on specific days, but every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, I'm celebrating Passover. Passover, again, was the feast where the blood of the lamb that was over the doorposts of the Israeli homes was remembered with um, the Paschal lamb on a yearly basis. But the blood of Jesus flows through my spirit constantly and continually rejuvenates me spiritually and restores my status of righteousness and renews me in the Lord. So I have a continual feast, a continual feast of Passover, a continual feast of Pentecost, which is the feast that represents the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and a continual feast of tabernacles, which is symbolic of the Father of all creation dwelling in the hearts of his sons and daughters. That's not just one time a year. That happens to me every day of the year and every moment of every day. But let's go back to the shadow so we can more greatly appreciate the substance. Leviticus chapter 23 is a chapter that foretells many of the feasts that God commanded to Moses to tell the children of Israel to participate in. And verses 1 and 2, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, sacred times of gathering. God said, These are my feasts. And I think it's important to see they're not just the feasts of Israel. They're not just traditional things Israelites do. They are the feasts of the Lord. God said, they're my feasts. And so God had something very important in mind when he established these feasts. Then in the same chapter, Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 35, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. The feast of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work in it. And then verses 36 and 37 says, For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, which is an added festival at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles called Shemini Atzeret. 
the eighth day, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. as It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord. Now, why was that important? Well, first of all, it had a practical application, that God wanted them to have a day of rest where they could focus on spiritual things and connecting with each other in covenant relationships. But I also believe there's a spiritual application, a symbolical application, a prophetical application of God giving the command that they should rest, that these would be Sabbaths to them, first and last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, because it's God's way of saying, you can't accomplish this by your religious works, quote-unquote works, that you are being invited into this experience of heart by the grace of God and by the workings of God. And you can be at rest in realizing God has accomplished this in our behalf. And it's something we receive by faith and participate in with joy. And God said, on the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, which is a sacred assembly, a sacred assembly. And On an ultimate level, the most sacred assembly that will ever gather together to celebrate tabernacles will be in the eternal state when we're all made new. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. Well, I am resting in God that he'll do this because I can't resurrect myself from the dead and I can't make my body into a glorified form. No matter how many times I go to the Y, I'm not going to become a glorified person, right? By my efforts at, and my wife has given me this kind of signal, like maybe, maybe not. Uh, But uh, really, all teasing aside, all our efforts would be futile trying to reach that goal. So we're resting in God. And that's what the time of rest, the Shabbatical Shabbatical commandment uh, was all about, God told them to rest, but it was his way of saying, you can't do this on your own. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Now, once again, you have symbolism here because in the Old Testament, On an annual basis, there were certain offerings made by fire that had to be offered up to God on the altar, and the fire that was burning on the altar came from heaven to start with and was kept burning from year to year, and the drink offerings that were poured out on the altar also were representative of us in the New Testament. We become the offering. Not only do we become the tabernacle, we become the offerings, and we become the priests that offer the offering to God. It all comes together in us. And in the Old Testament, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they had certain set sacrificial offerings that needed to be made that were burnt offerings, consumed with holy fire. But in the New Testament, God is saying, if you want to be a tabernacle of God, that he will dwell in, you have to offer yourself with fiery passion to God and be consumed with the fire of God and become a burnt offering, in a sense, to him where your will is reduced to nothing, where there's no resistance in you against the lordship of Jesus. Then in verses 38 and 39 of Leviticus 23, God said, um, 
Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. So this was a harvest festival. It was the festival of olives and grapes. It was the wine and the oil that represented the best of all the festivals because Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the, the first ingathering of barley. And then Pentecost was a harvest time for wheat. But now the fall festivals are the wine and the, the olives and the grapes and the fruit of their labors. And really that's all indicative of and symbolic of the ultimate experience of tabernacles when God tabernacles, uh, tabernacles in us completely and we are in his image without any lack. We will fully image the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. And in that day, we will receive the harvest of all the fruit of our labor in this world. And that's what this represents. Then in verse 40 and 41 of Leviticus 23, God said, You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. God commanded them to rejoice. And the word rejoice means to re-experience the joy all over again. Or it can mean to return to the source of your joy. I think it's somewhat amusing that God commands them to rejoice. And, and of course, it had to come spontaneously out of their heart. But God said, no sad sacks around this place now. I don't want any glum looks in Jerusalem. When you come to celebrate tabernacles, you celebrate. And and, and really, we human beings need to be reminded that there's so much to be thankful and grateful for that we can focus on the joy and dispel the sadness. And that's certainly something that happens during tabernacles. He said, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And because of God's statement there, that it shall be a statute forever in your generation, many people assume, or some people assume, that it has to be celebrated. Legalistically, religiously, you have to do this on a yearly basis. I'm of the opinion that it's a good thing to do, but a not, not an absolutely necessary thing to do. Some years I've celebrated tabernacles, some years I haven't celebrated tabernacles, but every moment since I've been saved, I've been celebrating tabernacles on the higher spiritual supernatural level, which is the perpetual celebration God commanded. That's what he had in mind all along, the supernatural fulfillment, the substance, not the shadow. Now, what about these trees, the palm tree, the willow tree, uh, the leafy trees, uh, why were they important? Well, let me focus on the palm tree for just a moment. The palm tree is a very unique tree that survives the desert like no other tree. It can conquer wilderness, dry, arid areas when other trees wither and die. Why? Because the sap 
flows underneath the bark on most trees. And so when it's really dry and hot, it, it evaporates and the tree withers and dies. Not the palm tree. The sap runs through the heart of the palm tree. And I believe there's a symbolism to that because Psalm 92.12 says, The righteous shall flourish as the palm tree. Because our life is not in surface things like the sap running along the surface of the trunk. My life is not in the house I live in or the car I drive or the clothes I wear. Those are blessings, but that's not really what makes me alive inside. It's my relationship with God. It's in the heart, not on the surface. And the palm tree represents that. I believe that's why in the book of Revelation, the victorious saints that finally make it to that ultimate celestial goal are seen on a sea of glass mingled with fire, waving palm fronds as a sign of victory over the wilderness. And there's more to be said about the trees that God said uh, that they should use uh, in making booths in verses 42 and 43. This is where you get the word Sukkot, which means tabernacles or booths. He said, you shall dwell in Sukkahs, S-U-K-K-A-H. You shall dwell in Sukkahs for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths or Sukkahs. Why did God command that and how is that fulfilled? Now, many times... We've had a, a sukkah in the church. And of course, when I was over in Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles, they always have a sukkah over there because it's part of the foreshadowing symbol that represents spiritual truths on a much higher level that are the substance. And let's go into that right now. Oh, and by the way, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the first place where they camped, was called Sukkot, which uh, is found in Numbers chapter 33, verses 3 through 5, when they came out of Egypt. They moved from Ramesses to Sukkot, where they camped. And that's where they built their booths that they traveled in through the wilderness. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. In those verses, God said, when his people come together every year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So Sukkot is supposed to be a time when you generously give back to God of the things he has given you and blessed you with. Now, what about the sukkah, the booth that was made? There's some Elements about that booth that have real symbolic value. First of all, they used olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of thick trees. And there were certain commandments made. There could only be three walls to the sukkah. The front wall, uh, there was no front wall. It was just uh, an empty entrance area. And they were to lay the, the branches over the top but not so thickly that you couldn't see the sky. There had to be uh, places in between the branches where you could peer through and see the stars at night. That was very important. And he told them to dwell in the booths for seven days. Now, a lot of people just eat and converse and fellowship outside of their homes in a booth, and the booth cannot be attached to the house. It's got to be standing independently. 
for seven days. Most of them don't sleep in the sukkah. Uh, but what does this sukkah represent? Number one, commemoration of their journey through the wilderness. We don't want to forget what God has done. And think of that generation that was wandering through the wilderness of sin for 40 years in booths like this, in dwelling places that were very vulnerable to the weather, to the elements. And that's the second thing it represents, our vulnerability as human beings. We're traveling through a world that's unpredictable. And number three, there's always changes going on in society and culture and our family units. And and uh, change in the weather was something that would really affect you if you were in a sukkah. Also, it speaks of humility because people tend to make elaborate homes to dwell in with all kinds of nice things in order to make life more pleasant. But the sukkah is just down to base requirements, and it speaks of humbling yourself before God. The front area being completely open, only three walls, speaks of being open to God and open to others to develop covenant relationships with them. Also, the, the uh, places in the roof where you can see through the branches to see the sky above speaks of clarity, being able to see heavenly things while you're on your earthly journey. And it also speaks of rest because they were to rest in the sukkah for seven days and just enjoy fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. These are some of the things represented by the sukkah. Also, Jews use something called the lulav. And it's very important, uh, I think, that we visit the lulav uh, to understand why they do that. They take the four species, which is the pine, and uh, which is lulav, and the hadas, which is the myrtle, and the arava, which is the willow, and the etrog, which is a large lemon-like fruit. And uh, they bind all of these together, except for the uh, the etrog. They bind together the pine, uh, the palm strand. It represents, because it's a long, straight leaf, it represents the spine. And then the myrtle is a small, circular leaf, and it represents the eyes. And the willow is kind of an oblong... Um, uh, circular uh, shape that represents the lips. It's, it's somewhat in the shape of a human mouth. And the etrog is in the shape of the human heart. And so Jews will shake the four species to the, uh, to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north, upward and downward, as if to say, I give all of my heart, all that I say, all that I see in life, and my will, represented by the spine, I give it all to God as an offering. And they'll shake the four species as a symbolic way of praying that prayer. Also, as they shake it to the east and the south and the west and the north, it's their way of saying, may the blessing that's in my life spread around the globe. And of course, with millions of Jews around the world doing that, it's in a sense, saying, may the revelation of Yahweh and the goodness of God shown to the Jewish people, may it spread around 
the world. And there's much more that can be said about that. But uh, finally, I want to bring out this, that the Feast of Tabernacles is all about the latter rain also. It's the final outpouring of rain in the Holy Land that brings the crop to full maturity. And the final reign of the Holy Spirit is about to fall on this planet in an unprecedented way. I believe that we are in the time of the latter reign, and it's going to bring the harvest to full maturity. And the scripture that I'm going to quote right as we come to a close is Zechariah 10.1, where the prophet said, Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord will make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. And of course, that's supernatural rain. And then finally, in the kingdom of God to come, Zechariah, during the Messianic age to come, said that we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. I believe people will come from all over the world to celebrate Tabernacles. Zechariah fourteen sixteen says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wasn't that an interesting study? Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.